we're clearly on the front end of what seemed to be a big wave. The danger there being that big waves in Europe and Asia don't always become big waves in the US. It wasn't a certainty by any means. This has really potential to be far bigger than we ever thought it could be. We're going to try to build a national company here. What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy Cortado, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka No Kagan. I got to admit something I love to do. Play escape games. These are rooms that you pay money for, and then you have 60 minutes or so to escape. I know, it, it sounds really strange, but my good buddy Jordan from the Jordan Harbinger Show, you got to check out his show. He and his wife, Jenny, got me into it, and we are addicted, me and my girlfriend, Liar. And we play them whenever we travel. We've done over 50 of them, and honestly, I fail about half the time, if not more. But heck, they're super fun, and I highly recommend you try one out next time you get a chance. So I wanted to find out who the F are these people making these games? How do they actually make these games where you have to use locks and clues to get out? And how profitable are they? So today I talked with the founder, Jonathan Murrell of The Escape Game. That's theescapegame.com. They made a game in Austin called Playground, which is one of my favorite escape rooms of all time. If you ever want to learn about being on the front end of the wave of a huge business opportunity and scaling it really, really quickly into a national business chain, I think you'll love this episode. Here's three big things you're going to learn. Number uno, how to recognize big business opportunities, sumo-sized, and quit loser businesses. Numero dos, dealing with a business where the model is only a one-time sale. And number three, this was almost the most surprising, which is how they use customer data and feedback to make their business more profitable. I was not expecting them to talk about this or share it with us. So you're going to enjoy those three things plus a bunch more. Before we jump into the conversation, go check out appsumo.com. It's a 100% free newsletter that we started that features exclusive deals on the best products for entrepreneurs. That's appsumo.com. Do it on your phone. It's free. Do it right now. Sign up. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Ron Hogue, who said the show keeps getting better. Ron, you're the man. I appreciate everything you said. I love every single one of you. If you want a shout out in a future episode, leave an iTunes review right now. Do it. I check every single one. How's it going today, man? Yeah, things are going really well. Thanks for calling today. I was like, I just got to learn more about these escape game business. I've done like Playground. And, and I, honestly, I think that's one of the top five rooms I've ever done. So I just wanted to learn more about you and then share your story with my audience. Yeah, for sure. When did you uh, play Playground? We played it about a year ago and we failed. I don't know about you. I track all the escape games I do and I fail about like half of them. Maybe I just suck. <laughs> no, escape games can be hard. How many have you played? So I think somewhere around like 60. Oh, wow. You're a real enthusiast. Yeah, how about you? So I stopped keeping track at some point. North of 150, probably not quite to 200 yet. Oh, nice, man. How did you get started in this world? Yeah, so um, this year is the five-year anniversary of our company. We opened our first room five years ago this month, not year. October 2013, Mark Flint, one of the partners in this business, was on a family vacation in Europe. He played a game while he was in London. Went on TripAdvisor, said, what should I do here? Escape game was a top-rated thing to do. Played it, had a blast. The next day, found another one, played it, had a blast. Fast forward a little bit from there, myself and him were having lunch one day talking about different business ideas. This one came up. We were both doing other things at the time, but it was kind of interesting because it was clearly this really unique form of entertainment that felt like was filling a gap and like it was social and immersive and tactile and like just totally different from going to the theater and watching a movie or sitting down and playing a video game, but kind of tapped some of that puzzle side of people. Anyway, we kind of said, let's talk more about this. This is interesting. 
two weeks later, we decided that the only way we were really going to learn more is if we kind of played more games. And at that point, the sort of hub of the industry was in Budapest, in Hungary. So two weeks later, we were with our families in Budapest playing games. We played, gosh, like probably 16 games in like two and a half days. It was a real short trip. Maybe we were there for three nights, I think. Played a ton of games. Got to meet some like the original people responsible for kind of like pioneering the industry in Eastern Europe. Came back to Nashville and really just decided that this was something that should happen in the U.S. At that point, we realized there was probably, depends on who's counting and how you're counting, but three-ish other escape rooms open at that point in the U.S. And so it was big in Europe and then had just started crossing over when we got interested in the industry. Six months later, our first store opened in Nashville. Really, TripAdvisor got us into this, I guess. What were you doing before you met your business partner? Yeah, prior to that, my brother and myself, and my brother's another business partner in this business, but we were doing an e-commerce business. We actually ran an online candy store. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then were you wanting to do something new, or how did it transition from running that in, into this thing? We started that business in college, and so did it for about three years. I started it sophomore year, and it kind of kept evolving into what it finally became was really an online candy store focused on bulk candy, not quite like wholesalers, but like kind of a mid tier of like party planners, event planners, people who need such a funny little space. But if you need, you know, five to 20 pounds of candy, where do you turn? That's a little bit more than you can just pick up at Kroger or CVS or something like that. And then specialty stuff. And so if you needed, you know, five pounds of only blue gumballs. And so we kind of fit in this really nice niche there. There's a big market for it. But by the time we were done with it, about two or 3,000 types of candy in inventory at any given time. It was a growing business and doing well, but we kind of looked at each other after graduation. He graduated the year before I was graduating. We'd already been running the business for two and a half years. And we kind of realized that we got into that field probably three, four years too late. And so there were some companies who are doing really well in that space, even to today, but they started before we did and they had kind of this momentum. They had a little bit more buying power. They were a little bit better established and that general internet presence they had by being kind of early to the game, dominated searches. We were spending more to make less than they were having to. And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, we knew what we needed to do to kind of close the gap. And we knew basically it came down to, do we want to spend another five to seven years fighting an uphill battle in this industry to get to the sort of the scale where this space starts to make sense? Didn't really feel good about committing that much of my life to selling candy. And so we kind of made this decision. We said, okay, I'll start exploring something new and you keep running the business because I had just gotten married at that point. We needed to make money. And so we kind of came to this agreement that I would start to explore what kind of what next looked like. And then he would run the business. And so we, our paychecks would keep coming. And so that happened. And then within a month or two, it was that conversation where we sat down with Mark over lunch and this new idea came up. And so at first, this wasn't even the only thing we were kind of dipping our toes into, but it pretty quickly became apparent that this was a really interesting opportunity. And we were in the process of beginning to realize that we didn't want to put the years into it that it would take. We had about 12 to 15 employees in that business, great big warehouse, tons of candy. I mean, it was fun and it was a blast, and especially a great learning experience to do that through college. What made the escape game one stand out the most to you? When Mark explained, I'm trying to think if someone came to me like, hey, we're going to build a business where we have a room and people pay us $60 to try to leave the room. Did you get it right away? or did Oh, you gosh. Yeah, definitely did not get it right away. And I think that we both came to that meeting with three or four other primary ideas. And it wasn't until we both kind of shook our head at 
everything else we had talked about and we had wrapped up our burgers and we were about to leave that he kind of brought it up. And so it was definitely, of all the things we talked about the day was like the last thing we even talked about. That first lunch was definitely not enough to convince me that this was <laughs> something exciting. Then, you know, the next day I saw my brother at work and he's like, what'd you guys talk about? And then when I told him, he's like, that's weird. My wife's like, well, how was lunch? I'm like, I told her about locking people and she goes, that's weird. So yeah, it definitely took a little bit of time for us to understand what this was. But I think what to me kind of helped to turn that switch quickly was just go to TripAdvisor in Paris. What's the number one thing to do in that moment in time? It was literally, it was an escape game. London, it was an escape game. Madrid, it was an escape game. Berlin, it was an escape game. And so as I started to dig into, realize that there's, gosh, there's something here beyond locking people in a room. If this is the most talked about attraction in all these major cities. Did you guys run the math? I actually heard from one person that the rooms can cost like hundreds of thousands to build. And so you kind of start doing the math. It's like, well, how do the economics work? Did you guys run a lot of numbers or how did you make the decision to go all in on it? Yeah, we did. And if you kind of follow the escape room space, there's we were one of the first five for sure to open in the US to last count might have been over 3000 companies have opened the US. And so we ran the numbers. And for what we were spending at the time, we honestly did not expect that as many people would come and be excited about it as they were. So we had really mild and low projections of who would come. And so we matched that with, with honestly, really low starting capital. As we realized this was something that people wanted, we've continued to reinvest along the way and upgrade the product and experience. When we open, I call them escape game years, but I feel like in this industry, it's kind of like three years happen every year. And so the amount of change and sort of pace of change that this industry has undergone in just the last five years, it's like this is a 20-year-old industry in some senses. That's how quickly things have changed because in the early days, you're talking to the first 10, 20, 30 companies who started games. I don't know that one of us spent more than $20,000 all in on a room. I think that would probably be on the high side. But then today, we're spending in the mid-200s on an average room, and I've heard of games going even higher than that. And we've spent even more than that on some of ours as well. So the economics have definitely dramatically changed, but also the quality's changed. We don't even have the original game, but we've updated it three times since then. But our original, original Nashville game, even three times updated, is nothing like our special ops game or the games that we're putting out now. The industry in general has changed dramatically in the last five years. So the first model, was it just one room that cost 20K? You'd sell it for 30 bucks a head. And what were you guys thinking with that? I guess I'm curious the economics that you guys were uh, walking through, especially in the early on. Yeah, so we signed a lease in our building. We were paying cheap rents under 16 bucks a square foot. It was definitely a destination location, kind of all the usual check boxes for escape rooms. Low rent, destination location, so not main on main. We came into a space that was pretty large, but our initial goal was we're going to open with a lobby and two games, and then we'll see how it goes. And so we kind of built everything around what does this look like with two games operating. My brother and myself were going to be the primary staff to start out with. So this started as like, a, hey, let's jump in. Let's be the boots on the ground. Let's run this thing low staff requirement because we didn't really expect much. And so we started with two other employees. And so other than three partners, we started thinking that we might be able, hey, let's kick this thing off with two part-time employees, part to full-time, but they're hourly employees. We were expecting a slow start. I remember a conversation where we said, you know, maybe if this thing goes really well, a couple of years from now, we should look at, do we grow another unit? But we did more business in the first 60 days than we had planned on doing in the whole year. Damn. Where did that come from? It came from word of mouth. There's sort of a good and the bad to it. Of One side of it is 
there was so much word of mouth because people had just never heard of something like this. But then also the downside was sometimes because every single guest was someone we were trying to educate about the space. So it kind of was a double-edged sword there. But I think that word of mouth is huge. And then within two months, we were pretty high ranked on TripAdvisor in Nashville, delivered a great experience, got great feedback from guests. And so we started to see a lot of tourist traffic come in in month three, people coming to the city looking for something different and new. How did you guys actually develop the first two rooms? We played a lot of games in Budapest at that point. We played all the games that were available in America. We did another trip to Asia and played games in Singapore, which was kind of another hub. Honestly, we just kind of dug in. It was really me and Mark digging in on the game side of things. My brother started to dig in on some of the operations stuff. And we spent that time from January to April figuring out what it meant to create an escape room, designing puzzles, reading about puzzles, trying to work backwards from all the stuff that we had seen and built a guide for ourselves of what types of things we enjoy, what experience we want to deliver to our guests. And so kind of did it by just jumping in and figuring it out as we went. No one on the team has a background in uh, puzzles or game design or anything like that. That's wild. You know, we've done games with my girlfriend all, all over the, the world, wherever we go. That's kind of like a thing we like to do is go and find a game and our friends, Jordan and Jenny do it too. But your playground one was just so unique. We did it, I think, a year plus ago, and it's still today like one of my favorites of all time. So I'm guessing it's amazing to see how you guys have evolved from more basic lock stuff to the advanced, like, I'm sure Arduino or whatever things you guys have to do to make that. And then it's even from the playground you've played to the playground we just installed in Atlanta, they're hugely different. It's really cool deceiving when a game does come out, how we keep making it better till it hits a point where we say, okay, this one, it's ready now. Because Austin was the first iteration of Playground that we actually released. That's actually really interesting. How do you take the feedback or notice feedback to improve it for future cities? We watch the games intensely. Every single game that gets played, as the game is being played, there's a lot of data that's being collected. The game master is watching it. When different clues are asked for, frequency of clues being asked for, where game guides are having to interact more than we would want them to. We track room entries, which are times when the game malfunctions. And so we keep logs and logs of data. And so we're constantly looking through that and saying, okay, if more than we expect are coming back and running into a wall at a particular clue, we start to say that's a clue design problem, not a user problem. And so we never like in any of our games to ask people to jump too far, to kind of jump the logical <laughs> rails too far. We want to make sure that it feels like this could have intuitively been gotten to. One of the most frustrating things I encounter when I play games is even after they explain the clue to me, I look at them like, I don't think I ever would have made that connection. We love when people go, oh my gosh, how did I miss that? That was right in front of my face. We want to leave you always knowing that you could have achieved this and you could have accomplished this. Our objective is not to make guests feel dumb or inadequate to the challenge because I've played games where they were excited that we couldn't solve it because it made them feel like they designed a better game. I think they just designed a worse game. And so we take all the feedback, we look at that data, and then we also, our game guides who get to see these games run all day, contribute a lot of feedback of how the games are playing and where people are kind of enjoying it. And then we come back in and try to make the modifications, try to add clues, subtle hints. It's pretty interesting how little tiny things can change the flow of a game by five, 10 minutes. And so just moving where we put a poster or where we put two clues that are connected relative to each other in a given room how that differs from city to city actually has more significant impacts on the time it takes for an average group to finish that room than you would probably expect. So we watch all that and then we continually modify and tweak the game. And then in Playground's case, there's a lot of aesthetic changes that we've made since that one first got installed because we've 
gotten better equipment and machines. We've now got two CNC machines and we've started to work with kind of better materials for building the playset. We've also upgraded a lot of the technology in that game because we've graduated from Arduinos to these big PLC brains that kind of manage the whole game and have better, more timed sound integrations. And really the game flows as sort of an immersive environment a little bit more with the new technology we're using now. I would expect that it'd be like, hey, yeah, we talked to someone and they gave us some feedback and we fix it. It's interesting. It sounds like the level of detail of amount of data that you take. I know what you mean. Like there's different types of games where the linear progression of clues that you're trying to solve, you're like, oh, that made sense. And I didn't solve it, but I get where it was going versus some of them. I'm like, I have no idea how we're supposed to connect that. Special Ops is a new game that we released. And um, because of the kind of a quirk of one of the layouts in one of the recent games we built, it must have been our Opry Mill store. We had to put a little half wall. The wall extended four feet further than it does in our typical layout. And what that did was it actually changed the angle from which someone who's looking at one screen of information needs to see the other screen of information. It's relatively small change to the game. And we're finding that there's over a 10 minute difference in average play time because of that, what you would think would be a relatively insignificant change in the layout of the game. So it's stuff like that that we came back and said, okay, oh, wow. So then that goes into our program and we realize, okay, this is how Heist should lay out. And so because we're continuing to scale and doing more and more stores, we have a really, not just the data on the game, but then exactly how a room should lay out. And then here's what can be adjusted and here's what can't be adjusted. So when we're going through our architectural plans. We're saying this clue has to be here relative to this clue. Otherwise, we're going to break this connection that sort of matters to the timing and progress of a game. It's part of what we think allows us to serve guests the best and deliver high quality experiences every time is because we're really listening and analyzing and digging into make sure that the experience is as smooth and seamless as possible. The two things that, that I'm curious is that how frequently are you taking feedback and making the changes? And then how do you know which changes to implement? I think that's a common thing in, in our company at Sumo and, and other businesses where when you get it, you're like, okay, some I should listen to and some I should ignore. Yeah. I can split these in two categories. I think we have general guest feedback and then a game specific feedback. And so I'd say that with general guest feedback, we are obsessive about review sites, TripAdvisor, Yelp, Facebook reviews, and Google reviews, as well as after a game, you usually get an email question, an email survey from us kind of requesting feedback. And so I'd say from a guest perspective, if we get feedback, neutral or negative, we go into high gear and we've been known to change entire policies over single instances. Like we really, we are obsessive about making sure that we respond to and meaningfully adjust our behavior based on feedback. Obviously within business reason, there's occasional people that are going to have a problem with something no matter what, but whenever we see feedback as an opportunity to improve what we're doing, we take that on a guest level very seriously. And then game feedback is gathered at a different rhythm. So we're collecting guest feedback every single day. And then game feedback, we actually have a whole department called Game Quality Management. And they're sort of metrics for all the games in the system. And they're watching those on weekly, monthly, and quarterly basis and saying, okay, heist in this city versus heist in this city, are they playing within the ranges? They're not. Then they start to dig in and say, okay, why is heist in Minneapolis as opposed to all of our other heists playing with this win percentage instead of these win percentages? And we're not trying to artificially cause a win percentage or change a win percentage or cause wins less than 10 minutes or wins over 10 minutes. We're just trying to understand a well-balanced game that was designed and installed and running appropriately should roughly match its 13 other counterparts in the system. And so then we use that as our indicators to say, 
which of these games are going off. Or maybe the only difference is this one's breaking down more frequently. And so that's where our maintenance team then can step in and to start digging into that store and that game from a maintenance perspective. Dude, I love that you guys are looking at benchmarks and, and taking data and then printing it back into making the games even better. I think coming back a little bit to when you got started compared to the candy business, and I think this is a question I hear a lot from different people, which is like, how do I know the business idea to do? And how do I know when to stop versus keep going? Did this business just hit when you launched it with TripAdvisor and Word of Mouth? Were you just like, holy shit, like this is it? Or was there something else that you noticed with this business? We clearly were excited about it enough to make the decision to shut down our other business and put our full effort and attention into it. And so I think what led us to that first kind of milestone was recognizing, one, we were clearly on the front end of what seemed to be a big wave. The danger there being that it was definitely a big wave in Europe and Asia, but big waves in Europe and Asia don't always become big waves in the US. It wasn't a certainty by any means, like sort of a bigness of the idea hit us. And that's what got us excited in the first place. And then I think that as soon as month three or four happened, and we were doing far better than our projections, we were hiring staff as fast as we could find good people. And we started having serious conversations about store number two. I think that's when we realized this has really potential to be far bigger than we ever thought it could be. And we started to kind of reset our minds from we're building a a one unit business that kind of an exploratory business to like, we're going to try to build a national company here. And so I think there were sort of two different moments of buying in to what we were doing. Was that right away or was that after some time? Because I think that's something that I know I feel it's like, okay, let's scale and we're worried about the future. But at the same time, it's like, let's just make sure it's working now. Yeah. Within five months of opening, we were actively looking for our lease in Orlando, for our lease in location number two. I don't have a clear memory of the moment when we realized that, but I think that we were fortunate because of some of the timing, the earliness of the industry, the uniqueness of the concept, the heavy word of mouth, the tourist, all those things coming together in this little perfect bubble that gave us a lot of momentum early on. And so I think the momentum that we were feeling convinced us that we were ready, this was something we should carry forward. Unfortunately, I feel like we had a very unique situation because we had that clarity so early on. I think with the candy business, that was the much harder one to realize. It never felt like we had gotten the momentum and the snowball rolling downhill. We felt like we were still barely adding pieces little by little. And it was a little bit more of a slog. But with this one, that momentum coming by month five or six was so strong and the guest feedback so positive. We were just like, okay, we've got to run and we've got to run this thing fast. Did you guys shut down the candy business? Did I hear you say that? Yeah, we did. And in December, when we kind of made the decision that we were going to pursue this, we started a process of winding down our other business. And so over the next four to five months, we started to sell off inventory and then let the staff transition into new roles. And then actually our last two staff at Candy Galaxy became the first two employees of the escape game. We all locked up the building one day and drove over and opened the other one the next day. Nice. That's cool that they could keep working together. How did you choose your next location? You know, you're in Nashville. I would not have thought Orlando is your next place. How'd you guys prioritize these places? Yeah. So because TripAdvisor was such a big deal in the early days, and I say it was big in the early days because now we view it as a very important measure of guest feedback, but it's really not an important driver to the business nearly as much as it was in the early days because for right or wrong, TripAdvisor has massively changed the way that they structure their things to do pages. And so in the early days, there was no subcategorization of things to do pages. And so things to do, so in Paris, an escape room was next to Notre Dame, was next to the Eiffel Tower. And so like 
it was sort of this massive funnel of people just being exposed to the product. So over time, as TripAdvisor, new categories have been added. So now they have categories that are separate for tours versus escape rooms versus public places. And so they've really changed the way that they funnel their traffic. And so TripAdvisor, after about the first six or seven months, stopped becoming a really critical like advertising tool, but it's we've kept on to it and held on to it really tightly. It's just a really important measure of guest feedback because people trust and recognize it and it tells us point of saying, how are we doing on this? But Orlando, because of that early emphasis on tourism, Orlando is a natural spot because it's the largest tourist market in the US. They have 80 million plus visitors a year going there. And so we're like, okay, a lot of our business in Nashville is being driven by tourists. Where do we go to wrap our arms around as many of them as we can? And so Orlando fit the bill for that. We also had a lot of relational connections in Orlando. So we knew kind of where to start looking for a management team. And then this one's a little bit silly, but it actually matters a lot is it's a short flight from Nashville. And so instead of going to the West Coast or even the Northeast, it allowed us to access a really, really dense tourist population to our flight away. Interesting. Yeah, you guys are a lot more thoughtful than I expected. That's impressive, man. I'm so happy for you guys. What would your thought about like a business that you can only sell to someone one time? I think most people would be like, I don't get it. And the second thing is competitive advantages or differentiation because the names are so damn similar. Like you go to the city, it's like escape this, lock this. I've seen some where they add multiple. But for the most part, it's, it's a one time. Yeah, those tooth challenges are probably two of the fundamental challenges of the business. Probably only one I would add to that is like we have a throughput issue. No matter how you slice and dice at escape rooms, which cap our ability to pay rent really because... I don't know that an escape room can ever go to Times Square just because per square foot, there's only so many heads we can get in per hour. And so you peg two of the three significant challenges of our business. <laughs> Are a lot of people doing the escape games at the same time? Like, hey, let's do it Friday night or let's have a team builder during the same hours. Everybody wants to play on Saturday between two and six. <laughs> and very few people want to play on Tuesday at 9.30 a.m. How many times to go back to the original question of how many times you can play it? I think when we think about an audience that makes sense to us and why we want to go to a given market, we think about it in terms of three groups of people. We want to be near locals and have a large local population to draw on. We want to be near kind of a central business district and have high density of businesses that we can draw on. And then we also want to be in a place that's really convenient and accessible to a large group of tourists. And so that's sort of those three elements are what we feel round out our business. The tourists are sort of a little bit of our solve to the replayability. And that's why Orlando is such a great market for us, because every week you have a big chunk of fresh guests coming in the city. And to them, it doesn't matter that we only have five titles. They're coming in and they're not coming back to Orlando for years. So the replayability is a challenge. But I think what we found is the number of enthusiasts who would outplay our games even in a city where we've been several years, is relatively small. And so most people, even people who love the experience, don't play more than two or three times a year. And so people like yourself who've played 60 games and who would kind of burn through content in a month and a half are the rare part of our audience. We try to appeal to a really mass middle market audience, and most of those people are consuming our product and enjoying it, but not consuming it at the frequency that causes us to run out of content for them too quickly. You know, we're in a rhythm in Orlando, one of our earlier markets where two new games are launching this week. And so we were trying to get ourselves in a pace of, in existing markets, a new piece of content 
cycling in at least every 12 to 18 months. 12 months is the preferable. So as our stores are getting older, we're coming back through and getting them on a regular cycle of updates, which is going to help there. But I think the flip side of it is what we realized is with the games as expensive and as labor intensive and as brick and mortar heavy as they are, it's challenging economically to say, let's change these out every six months. And some people have decided to go to the spectrum. We can deliver $12,000 to $15,000 experience and trade it out every six months, or we can deliver a multi-hundred thousand dollar nearly cinematic experience, but it's going to have to sit here for a couple of years. And so we've decided kind of to lean more of you know that side of the spectrum. Definitely people are doing the other side too and investing less and trying to turn them around quicker. The only thing I'll throw out here just as a little teaser is we're working on a game that could be replayable and it's more of a competitive game and it's two different teams are playing against each other. And so the core of the game, it kind of changes depending on how you play because some of the things you do are reactions to what the other team is doing to you. And so a game like that, it's more competitive would allow for the replayability. And so we're working on our answer to that question in game format. Yeah, there's one in Austin called Perplexium, which one of the games, it's a score-based game. So you can keep going back to try to score more points. I've never gone back, but I thought it was kind of a clever thing. I don't know how well it works in getting people to come back. How did you think through the throughput and differentiation? Because so many escape rooms kind of have the same name. Back to the branding. Yeah, this is a funny one. And we spent a lot of time going back and forth on this. I think we always go back and forth and say, did we pick the right name here? Because in the early days, it was hugely helpful to be the escape game because we were sort of pretty generic and that helped people understand what we did and kind of made it simpler to explain ourselves in those first three to four years. The downside now is with the proliferation of other games, we're kind of generic and it kind of has been harder to stand out. And so I think that we're really trying to make sure that our locations and our games are just incredibly excellent and stand out. And so we like to go into locations that are sort of as premier as we can possibly get to in a city. And then we like to deliver as high quality game experience as we can. And just we're trying over time to say, let's continue to deliver the best. And let's try to stand out as not a generic, despite the fact that there's so many other people, let's build a brand that's intentional about its excellence and its high quality entertainment value, and just continue to work at that. And so we're working our way and hopefully crawling through the fray a little bit and beginning to establish a brand presence. But I think that as we continue to roll out units that deliver that same kind of brand promise of high quality, immersive experiences and excellent guest service, we're trying to build that national presence and brand that people can recognize, despite the fact that the industry as a whole is a little bit muddy. Do you guys build all of them yourself and come up with your own unique games? What I heard is that a lot of people are buy them from Russia, which I was like pretty surprised to hear that. Gosh, I would say that most owners that I speak with buy their games from someone. And Russia is sort of the cheapest place to buy them from. If you want pretty good quality product for a reasonable price, it's a great option. Every game that we have, we design ourselves. I can't say we produce 100% of everything in our rooms, but we have a 20,000 square foot manufacturing facility and a large manufacturing team. And we make almost everything that goes in our games ourselves. So we not only design it, but then we manufacture it and do most of the install. Did you guys raise money or is this just all self-funded from the profits? I mean, that sounds really impressive. Yeah. So in the early days, it was self-funded. At the end of 2017, we did a capital raise. What made you want to do that? Gosh, it would have been after opening Chicago. We opened Chicago and kind of realized that all six were doing well. And we kind of kept thinking that at some point we would maybe open a store that didn't do as well as another one. 
and kind of had that realization that they're all doing well and they're all doing better than the one before. And like, we're getting better at this and we're growing this corporate infrastructure that understands what we're doing. And we looked around and said, hey, we've been in this industry longer than anyone else. So if anyone has a chance of really rising to the top and becoming a national player, like we're the old guys here. We made a stance. I think there was this moment end of 16 through 17, where a lot of the people who got into this industry early, like we did, were faced with a really challenging decision. The decision was things, cost structures have fundamentally changed because competitive quality is higher and there's tons more competitors. So I'm no longer the only player in town. If I want to compete and want to make anything like the money I used to make, I need to invest in the quality of the product. Because before, honestly, if you were the only player in a city, you made plenty of money regardless of the quality of your product because people just wanted to consume this type of activity. But once it came to a point where there were 35, 40 operators in Chicago, it's really a question of, can you invest the level that gets you the blind share of the pie? And so a lot of the early companies that got into the space who enjoyed those early profit years and low cost, high revenue years didn't want to invest what it took to kind of raise their level to the next level. So we saw quite a few people who kind of initially out of the gate, we thought were going to be key competitors of ours. We saw them either slide away, pivot their businesses into other categories, really just across the board, choose not to invest to the level that we said, okay, let's invest. And so I think when a lot of people were walking away, we decided to double down. And so we went from building stores and games at cost X to over the process of like deciding that we were going to deliver the best possible quality experience in premium locations and continue to drive that and then do it at scale. We decided to dig in and massively change our own cost structure, but made it even more. We said, let's build this barrier even wider. If a lot of other people are afraid to put the capital behind it, we basically made the decision. We don't believe this is a fad. We believe that High quality immersive entertainment is a has staying power and has the ability to be a long term business that we're willing to invest in. And so that was kind of all swirling through that year. And I think that led to us saying, this can grow faster than we can self fund this. And so let's grow this faster. The two things that you said that really stuck with me earlier on, you keep calling the games content, which I think is a really interesting way of framing it. You're not like, oh, it's a game and there's some puzzles and we play D&D. It's a content piece, which is an interesting way of uh, positioning it. I do like how you use the review site. So TripAdvisor was your wedge into getting the tourist customers. And I thought it was interesting for other business owners to be like, oh, yeah, like, are there other sites that people are looking for things to do or looking for solutions? And I could put myself there. And I think that's really smart what you guys did. How has your marketing changed? TripAdvisor was a big one, but then there's been dozens of other little ones that we found along the way. For instance, in Chicago, we're trying to build a more meaningful corporate business. And so we find websites that targeted people meeting events in Chicago, and then we'd create partnerships with those websites. Instead of saying, hey, how do we kind of reinvent the wheel and try to build these traffic funnels from the start? We kind of have tried to take the approach to say, where are people aggregating and can we get in front of them there? And so we see lots of business driven from these different websites where we've been able to come up and say, say, hey, we'll put a package together with Hard Rock Cafe and then allow a third party meeting and event planner to try to sell that package on both of our behalfs. How did you guys get so many early on? Was it at the end of the game, you ask everyone, please leave a review? Is it via the email? Like, Because you guys are like 10x higher than everyone else uh, on TripAdvisor in these cities. After games, we ask people like, hey, we appreciate any feedback. You can review us on TripAdvisor or any other sites. Like, We're learning from it. After game emails will go out and sometimes there'll be a link there to a review site. And so we're just intentional and we kind of make sure that 
a lot of people I feel like are afraid to ask every guest to review them because they wouldn't want to know what that says. But like, we want to know good or bad. We want to know exactly what that guest has to say, because we're going to be very attentive to the review when it comes to like, sometimes we joke about how overboard it is. But if we get a three star review, multiple phones ring within the first few minutes of that review coming in. There's a serious powwow that occurs and a serious chain of events that happen to make sure that we're really doing everything we can to address the root underlying causes of what would have created a negative experience for a guest. That's insane, man. I love the level of detail and attention that you guys do. One of the key differences between you guys and and now a lot of the escape games I, I do attend or go to, you guys are professionals. And you guys are treating it like a professional thing versus, and it's not that anyone else is bad, but it's a different way of approaching the different problems. I think other people are like, no, nah, it's a bad review. That customer sucked or whatever. And you guys take it as a way of looking to improve, which I really commend. How has your marketing changed? So you said TripAdvisor is not as impactful. When you go to a city now, what do you have to do differently? And obviously, I'm going to make sure that no other person who creates escape games listen to this episode. It'll just be <laughs> for my audience. But I am curious how your marketing has changed over time. Yeah, marketing has certainly gotten, I'd say, more challenging. But I think that with any growing business, I think that's the case. Like as the industry is maturing, like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. When we used to come into a city, let's say Orlando, there was the first year in Orlando, there was maybe four other players. And so there were four of us splitting up the pie in Orlando. And so we didn't have to do nearly as much marketing as we do now. We spent a lot less as a percentage of revenue on marketing. We had a one-person marketing team that got us all the way through store four. In the early days, I was the marketing team and the build person. And so we didn't have a marketing person until probably store three. And so like just in the early days of the business, because there was heavy momentum from the industry side of the concept, like just people interested in looking for this, marketing was low spend percentage of revenue, low effort in terms of team size and things like that. And then over the years, as that's changed, we've had to figure out Not only do we need to build this high quality product and make sure that we operate with excellence, but we also, we now need to like actually go out there and start looking for guests because they're not just walking in the door like they used to. And so we've built a nine person marketing team, I think, from an HQ level manages our marketing. And so team has scaled quite a bit to be able to provide sort of expertise in different areas and also just manage all the different efforts that go into it. But SEO, digital ads, social media, none of the like core foundational things that we do have changed, but they've gotten far more sophisticated. We're a lot better at that than we used to be. We're a lot more sort of in tune with the tracking and the reporting than we used to be. I wish marketing was easy and there was an ROI for everything you could possibly think to do. But I think that we've gotten a lot more intentional over the last five years about how we spend money and then being willing to stop spending money in areas where we feel it's not helping us being better using our capital and more efficiently than we've ever done before. The kind of a funny thing that's changed is in the early days, there was this fear that everyone probably shared of like, we can't show anything about our rooms because we'll give them away. And then probably about two or three years in that transition for us of saying, one way we can set ourselves apart from the rest of the pack here is we are investing all this money. Let's show our rooms off. And there's sort of a secrecy level that we've kind of just let go of. In the early days, it was like, don't talk about the rooms. Don't post anything about your experiences. We want these to be surprises for guests. And then I kind of hit us one day. We're like, if you're the kind of person who wants to go to a movie and read the ending before you go, you still went to the movie and you still enjoyed the movie. And so similar with escape rooms is we've started to be more open about saying, we're going to show you pictures of Gold Rush before you play Gold Rush because we want you to recognize how detailed the set is and get excited about that game. 
And if you're really curious, I bet you could probably find some of the answers to our puzzles online. I bet somebody's put it on Reddit somewhere. But that's okay because if you look for it, sometimes I Google the ending of movies before I go see them. And so I think that our approach to showcasing the rooms and putting the product up front is something that's really changed about our marketing. And then the other thing has just been the size and scale and effort we're having to put out there to continue to succeed. What do you think that most consumers don't know about running an escape game behind the scenes of it? Sometimes you can play some escape rooms and pretty much what you see is what you get. And so I think that some consumers could play a traditional sort of a classic mid-2016 escape game and kind of understand it. You know, you see the furniture, you see a handful of props, and you kind of know what it took to get to that point. I think that as it's gotten more sophisticated and complicated, I think that a lot of people really don't understand how much comes behind it. Like whenever we do a tour of our warehouse, we've got 30 people in our manufacturing facility. 20,000 square foot facility, two CNC machines, workbenches on workbenches. It's crazy. Tech rooms, paint rooms, all this stuff. And like, I think people even come play our games and enjoy the high quality and don't realize how much of it is custom made and custom designed so it can be exactly right for that room. And I think a lot of people just are shocked when they see how big of an effort it takes to deliver that quality of product. I think when people are starting out or if people were to compete with you, they can't compete at the level of quality that you guys are able to do now. So they're kind of still stuck with like, here's a lock and then here's a combo thing. When you guys have evolved the game so much further. That's been an intentional play of ours since the earliest days is saying, you've said it multiple times, but a lot of people come into this space and a lot of people view it as a low barrier to entry business. And what we've tried to be intentional about is let's change that. Let's make this a high barrier to entry business. Let's make this a business that Someone can't come in and just overnight be competitive with us. And so that's why we have the intense operations. That's why we have the high quality real estate. That's why we have our own fully integrated manufacturing facility, because we want to create something that people look at and say, I actually can't just do that on the weekend with some buddies and try to compete with them. That's not a part-time project anymore, because a lot of the early escape room owners, and probably still today, a lot of owners are part-time. And I think what we've tried to create is a business that it's a real business. It's a professional business and it takes full-time effort of a heck of a lot of people to pull something like that off. How has your time changed? Like how has your day-to-day or interactions changed from literally everything to like what your days look like now? Yeah, it's changed a lot and changes all the time. I think that what I do day-to-day probably changes significantly every three to four months. But I enjoy that because I think it allows me to laser in on whatever kind of needs done at the time. That's kind of my personality, the role that I've always played in the company. My brother, for instance, has been from day one, it's local store operations. And so whether that was one store or 13 stores, he's managing the systems and making sure that the local store operations work well. Historically, my role has been in marketing and then in kind of developing new stores and getting stores rolled out. And so in the biggest kind of example of how As we've scaled and grown, my day job has changed is when we were opening store two, I spent between seven and eight weeks in Orlando to get that store open. So just like small team, we're there all the time. The last store opened and I was there for two days for the entire duration of the project. And so necessary scaling, but that shows the picture of how my time has changed as I'm put less time in each store, but we've got remarkable teams, which honestly are way better at doing that job than I ever would have been because they're laser focused and that's their job. But I'm spending a lot of time in marketing and sales because as the process of rolling out new stores and sort of the pipeline is really tightened up and we have great teams running that, I'm digging in and really spending the next season continuing to dig into marketing and sales and say, how do we keep making sure that as we 
hit new markets. How do we hit new markets and get them up to speed as fast as possible? Really, we're starting to do some fun new things with new products. We're about to launch a board game. And so working on how do we add new products to this mix and sort of widen how people see the Escape Game brand. That's awesome. The question, I guess, is how are Escape Games evolving? It sounds like one thing you mentioned earlier is like competitors so you can compete against other people. It sounds like creating games that people can take home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're about to launch a game called, I believe we're, I'm going to let it be untitled right now, but it'll actually open in the next two months. Like I talked about a little bit earlier, it's a competitive game and it's the precursor and sort of the research project that's leading to an ultimately a game that's hyper competitive and replayable up to five or six times. And so basically like within one game, there would be like variants buried within this game that allows for limited replayability, not complete infinite replayability, but five or six times in a single box is still better than one out of a single box. And so we're advancing the ball in that direction. It's probably not the end all be all of where that lane is going to lead, but we're pretty excited about that direction we're moving with that product. So call it competitive limited replayability. We're also building sort of what's going to be, it's a game called Ruins and it's going to be out sometime in the summer, fall. And it's the most immersive, sort of thematically gorgeous sets, ridiculous build out, incredible technology integration game that we've ever put together. Like it is the culmination of five years and all the collective efforts and learnings of a massive team to put out this sort of like incredible, almost like not even an escape game anymore. It's like this adventure experience. Kind of on the one side, we're pursuing, as escape games are evolving, we're kind of pursuing how do we create more replayability? We're also pursuing how do we create just these milestone moment, monumental games that people walk out of and are like, that was just incredible. It's almost so different from the where escape games were five years ago. We're not even sure if they should be called escape games anymore. Then we're also exploring this angle of let's put a board game in your family cabinet and let this be something that in our board games are playable, which is different than a lot of escape room board games, but be something where this type of thinking and activity can happen on a regular basis. Then the final angle is this product that we call Unlocked, but it's actually a sort of a take-home. It's a hybrid between a physical and a digital experience, and you buy a packet and are able to take it home and complete sort of an adventure on your own time, but is more like a traditional escape room than our board game will be. And so we're kind of working this from a couple different angles here because we want to make sure that we're evolving and innovating alongside the industry's evolution. Do you guys send out regular newsletters? That's something that like, that's actually a lot of our business. And so I was curious if you guys do that, like, hey, we're opening a new city or the gift cards that you guys sell. Like, I've never actually really gotten communication from you guys. Oh, really? We definitely do a lot of email marketing. Well, even because a lot of people aren't ready to sign up right away for things. That's why like for our business, we've done well because of emails. So I was thinking, I was wondering why you guys aren't a little bit more aggressive, even just for asking like, hey, not ready to sign up or find out about our next games and so forth. Like when I you know go to Escape Game Austin. Yeah, we have a lot of room to keep getting better in. I just think that you guys, just a suggestion is like, at least on the top nav or on the bottom footer, just be like, hey, find out about the latest things and encourage people to do it. Obviously, you want them to book now. The majority of people aren't ready to book now. Yeah, that's going to be helpful to us because we realize that this is not something that people consume daily. And so we do have that heart, like, what do we do with someone who comes but isn't ready yet? So that's a great idea. Everyone should go, obviously, to theescapegame.com. And if they're ever in a city or traveling to a city, do your guys' rooms. What has been your bucket list of rooms? Is there any things that stand out in addition to your games that you'd recommend? There are great games all over the country. 
I have not played this one yet, but a couple people on our team have, and it's on my list for sure that I'll probably play in the next few months. Somewhere in the Louisiana countryside, this massive multi-thousand square foot experience is done by guys who run a haunted house, and so the scenic environment's awesome. So that one's one that I always see top of the list, and I've personally wanted to go. And we're opening a store in New Orleans soon, and so I'm going to try to make the journey over there when I go down for that opening. I don't have that big of a hit list. I think that this is going to sound really bad, but I've played so many just okay games. I've really, <laughs> I've lost some of my enthusiasm. And so there's some games outside of the country that I'm excited to play, but it, it takes a pretty good review for me to get excited about another game here domestically. Just because I have a pretty high standard for an hour of entertainment, but there's one in London, the new Sherlock series coming out that I'm pretty interested in playing because it's got, I don't know if you've seen the BBC show, but it's got like the, the character from that show. No, really? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I go to Budapest about once a year with a buddy of mine. It's unreal how many games there are. It's funny because there's like drama, whether Budapest or Japan actually started it. Because <laughs> so I was trying to figure out where it came from. That's a classic argument. I have not played in Japan, but I know quite a few people who have. But I kind of credit the scrap, the one in San Francisco, as sort of the Japanese style. And that certainly emerged first. But the Eastern European style is definitely the more dominant style of game. And that's one that like, I think most Americans grab onto and enjoy more. More of those style exist. Scrap was the original game, same company as like the guy who claims to have founded it from Japan. And so I think that the gameplay is just really different. It's sterile almost kind of environment and it's very intellectual. So I don't do so well in games like that. And so when we were in Budapest, on the kind of slightly dangerous, crazy side, there was a clue where there was a live car battery and jumper cables, and they were just expecting us to figure out what to do with that and not hurt ourselves. <laughs> so the Budapest games were very crafty and kind of rugged and rough, but like very much intuitive, connect the dots, street smart play. And then the scrap game that we played in San Francisco was basically we were sitting at like white tables doing math puzzles. <laughs> So I far prefer the more active, like I'm running around a room, flipping light switches, plugging in batteries and trying to figure out, you know, why A leads to B leads to C instead of trying to do a math equation. And so I think that's kind of how I've always split the difference between them is that they're just very different styles. What most people encounter as escape rooms, I think really has its origins in the Budapest style, not the Japanese style. Oh, I never knew that. That's awesome, man. John, I, I want to thank you for the time. This has been super cool to learn more about it. And it was amazing to get the insights and the professionalism that you guys are putting in with all the, your work. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been fun. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode. If you did, go check out Jonathan at theescapegame.com. I recommend every single one of their escape rooms in Austin, and they have them nationally. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's break out of jail together. Before you go, let me know what you thought of the show by emailing me podcast at okdork.com. I love to hear from most of you most of the time. Also, remember to go sign up for appsumo.com. It's a completely free newsletter and online store where you can find exclusive deals on the best products for entrepreneurs. Final special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com. I think this guy all the time because he's the bomb. And thanks to every single one of the dork team, Dean, now Sean, and David as always. And a special shout out to Daniel Yu at sumo.com this week. I just want to let you know I love you, dog. What's your favorite coffee?